Now when the Son of Man comes in his majesty, and all his angels are with him, he will sit on his majestic throne. All the nations will be gathered in front of him. He will separate them from each other, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right side, but the goats he will put on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who will receive good things from my father, inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you before the world began. I was hungry, and you gave me food to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothes to wear. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then those who are righteous will reply to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and give you clothes to wear? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Then the king will reply to them, I assure you that when you have done it for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you have done it for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Get away from me, you who will receive terrible things. <coughs> Go into the unending fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you didn't give me food to eat. I was thirsty and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me. I was naked and you didn't give me clothes to wear. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't do anything to help you? Then he will answer, I assure you that when you haven't done it for one of the least of these, you haven't done it for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous ones will go into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. So I hope you chose wisely when you sat down this morning. Um, you probably just sat where you sit regularly or where it was convenient or with friends or close to an exit, as some of you guys do every week. But today your choice is especially important since in the spirit of our passage today, there will be a reckoning. We shall separate the sheep from the goat, the left from the right. So, sermon over, right? <coughs> All kidding aside. This is one of those passages that haunts us. <coughs> I think you only need to have heard it about once to have it really stick in your head. It almost works too well. Like the details and the context can kind of be lost on us, but we think we know what it's about. The fact of the matter <coughs> that Jesus talking about sheep is normally a way that he talks about Israel, those he loves. Uh, Psalm 100 says, we are the sheep of God's pasture. Because, of, of course, Jesus is also the self-proclaimed good shepherd. But fear not, goats. <laughs> the Bible's goat picture is at least neutral and maybe neutral positive, right? Aside from this passage, of course. In fact, goats are even known in Leviticus as an appropriate sacrificial fill-in if supply, if like sheep supply on hand is, is low or non-existent. <coughs> also, 
as with modern shepherds, ancient Near Eastern shepherds often kept both sheep and goats together. So there's, there's hope still. Even internal to the parable, there's a little confusion. The sheep don't know what they did to get called sheep. <laughs> and the goats are similarly clueless, but maybe in more crisis. This is like the great sort of the Son of Man looking before the nations, and it seems really arbitrary. No one seems to know what they did or where they belong. The Son of Man, who's also like the most truly human one, the over and representative of all humanity, like in the book of Daniel, the Son of Man is the Messiah, seems to have a rubric of his own. And some pass that test, and some fail that test, and no one knew they were actually taking a test. This is the stuff of like high school nightmares, right? Like that there's a test that you didn't study for and that you didn't know that you were going to take, but you're going to be held accountable for it. Perhaps this test wasn't so much a test, but more so a habit or, <coughs> or a location, like a, like a proximity, I think, a place where these animals of the field had become accustomed to putting their bodies that really mattered. Were you close to the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the poor, the sick, the, the imprisoned? Where were you seems to be more of the question. The Son of Man seems to really value that philanthropic nearness to the least lost, last, littlest, and closest to death. Uh, when you start to talk about proximity, there's some really amazing people talking about um, doing these things, visiting the imprisoned, feeding the hungry, visiting the sick. One of them is a guy named Brian Stevenson, who many of you know. He's the head of the EJI, the Equal Justice Initiative, and the author of Just Mercy. He writes about proximity in Just Mercy. He says, proximity has taught me some basic and humbling truths, including this vital lesson. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. My work with the poor and the incarcerated has persuaded me that the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. Finally, I've come to believe that the true measure of our commitment to justice, the character of our society, our commitment to the rule of law, fairness, and equality cannot be measured by how we treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged, and the respected among us. The true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, the condemned. Michelle Ferrigno Warren, who's a director for, who is a director for the Christian Community Development Association, talks about how being proximate is necessary to engage brokenness because it transforms our lens. So I want to tell a little story, kind of a parable within a parable, kind of in this lens of proximity. This is kind of like Christopher Nolan meets the parables, right? We're going to incept some parables in here. Um, <coughs> so, most of us, most of the time, in one way or another, like any good goats, are looking to climb. Steve, I think there's a, a <coughs> yeah, we're looking to climb. Few of us are really adventurous in this climb maybe even dumb in the way we do this, like like free solo, like Alex Hanold, like 
going a little too far and too crazy with this climb, that some of us climb with this sort of risk and desire for mastery, like he sought over El Capitan. But most of us just assume that if we're on higher ground, we'll likely be more safe there. We'll be more happy there. There will be a better view from higher up. Goats like us up there are also becoming more and more adjusted to the rarefied air up there. When birthday time comes around, a depression comes over some of us if we've stalled in our ascent. We look at the pictures from last year or five years ago and we're not as far up as we thought we might be. Perhaps this is a new thing that we measure when we stop growing and stop putting pencil marks on doorways, right? Uh, it used to be how tall we are, now it's how far we're climbing. Some of us climb through our education. Some of us climb through our relationships. Some of us climb through job promotions and moving for opportunities. Some of us climb through networking. Some of us climb through getting our kids into the right schools and play groups. We climb. And in some cases, we climb in like a performative way to let everyone else know just how good our knees are for this ascent. We climb. We climb fast, and sometimes we climb slow. Sometimes it's in fits and, and starts. Normally, like January and February, despite being really cold months, are really good climbing months for us, right? Sometimes our climbs are even kind of involve helping others out. We set pitons uh, for those climbing behind us so that their climb's a little easier. We even cheer down the mountain, or we beckon people up the mountain. And mostly these climbs work out for us. Not a lot of people falling off the mountain. Mostly, faith and church seem pretty compatible with these sorts of climbs. In fact, sometimes they can be part of our climb for moral respectability. Onward and upward is the move for goats like us. But it's into this movement and mentality that people like Jesus and John the Baptist before him <laughs> call out from the bottom of the mountain, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And other things like, behold the sheep who takes away the sins of the world. I think there's another slide. Yeah. <laughs> this, this kingdom is really near, but mostly out of sight. You're going to have to take our word for it, they say. We've been to the mountain, but we assure you that out and up is in the wrong direction. It's down here where the air is thicker, that those with torn up lungs from years of smoking can breathe more easily, where those who have been working in the coal mines can breathe better. It's down here where it's flat that wheelchairs roll with more ease. It's down here in the valley of the shadow of death that we keep our prisons and our sick, our naked, our homeless, our thirsty, our hungry, the ones that we don't want to put up too high because we don't want too many people to see. You used to know the sheep down here. They used to be your friends and your neighbors, but they fell off the mountain and you just kept going. Sometimes you send money 
down the mountain for someone else uh, to, to take and go back down and then come back up, and that's helpful. Sometimes you even take a mission trip to build something, and that's good. Sometimes you'll look through your binoculars and see the needs and send real thoughts and real prayers, and that's something because the Spirit gathers our prayers and Jesus hears them and tells them to the Father. But Jesus misses you down here. Jesus hasn't seen you for a while in person. Jesus also wants you to know that there's a whole lot more down here that lies out of your perception. This mountain that you've made your life's pursuit is a molehill compared to the reality of the kingdom just under the surface. Jesus likes to be close to it, stands firmly on it, wants to be here when the great reversal happens and this reality becomes more real to goats like you. And the sheep already have a head start down towards it. You side. Yeah. So when you were ever at the bottom of the mountain, or as a kid, or as a grown-up, or like what's really a grown-up anyways, um, you had a chance to do something for someone. We still do. Uh, we can offer some sort of like transaction, like a granola bar or a $10 bill, and that's really good and that's helpful. And it makes us feel often a little like Jesus, to be the one to help the brokenhearted. Like it feels a little bit like when Jesus is moving through the crowds, touching and healing people, and, 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 um, and that's good. But you know what? When you actually get closer to hurting people, when, like Jesus, you, you pitch your tent and tabernacle amongst them, the first chapter of John says that, when they become part of your life, when you break bread with them and pray with them and visit with them and share with them, and the key word there is with, when you take care of their bodies, you won't always be Jesus, but you might actually meet Jesus. That's the most confusing thing. That's more extreme than this reversal is that reversal of our expectations there. That we move from trying to be Jesus into actually encountering Jesus. And, and when we do this, your life, when we do this over and over, not just on one-shot one uh, trips or attempts, your life will slowly and sneakily move from a life of doing good things from a distance to a life with Jesus in the kingdom. A life of uh, our, our songwriters with that amazing song, they sang, this is a life of eternity already. Like, eternity has a really long runway and an even longer tail, and somewhere in the middle you jump into, into the stream of this eternity that starts now and goes. It's, it's a life with God who is always with us. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a church plant that he helped start about 10 years ago or 10 years prior in Philippi. And this passage has really been on my mind this semester because I'm working for a New Testament class and I'm grading a lot of papers and some of you are writing papers and sermons. Um, and, and so Paul writes this letter to these friends in Philippi. 
And at the time, Paul was writing from prison. Like, think, think like Bonhoeffer writing from prison or Mandela from Robben Island or MLK from a Birmingham jail. Like, think writing on the random backs of things, like whatever the first century equivalent to like toilet paper strips were, and like getting, like contrabanding them out of prison. And, and so this is what Paul is doing. Or maybe he's just like loudly narrating this through a prison wall to someone. That would be pretty cool too, to dictate that way. Uh, and he's writing to this Philippian church that's going through it. Like they're really going through it. Ten-year-old church. There's some internal division. In Paul's absence, some new teachers have come in and tried to do a real theological number on his gospel of grace. And oh, they're in this like cosmopolitan place that's pretty inhospitable to Christians. Like Philippi is like a little Rome. It's founded by military vets and needless to say, a small nonviolent community committed to a crucified king rather than Caesar, like charts somewhere on the spectrum between weird and dangerous and like respectability is not on the map, okay? So <coughs> in, in chapter two, after a series of admonitions, he entreats them to have the same mind that is in Christ Jesus, the same phroneo. Can you guys say phroneo? Louder, come on. Yeah, that's good. Uh, phroneo, it's, it's like a, it gets translated in your different translations as mind or mindset or attitude. Like, uh, this is more like, uh, it, it's, it's less like think the right things about Jesus and you'll be in good shape. And it's more like having the forneo of Jesus means living in the story of Jesus. And then Paul tells that story and, and through some sort of kind of hymn or something. And the story goes like this, that you're to have the same mindset of Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, <coughs> and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in, uh, in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's probably worth an amen, right? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Do you see the parabolic shape of this story, though? The form of God, the very nature of God, but he did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped at or exploited. In this way, Jesus is the anti-Adam. He is the anti-us. He is the anti-goat because there is no climb in Jesus. There's just descent. He's somehow able to hold privilege while not withholding blessing. That, that is about an impossible thing to do, to hold privilege while not withholding blessing. And this is a true kind of authenticator to Jesus's divinity. This is what makes it so obvious that Jesus is truly divine, is that he's He's not like that insecure person that has to go around saying all the things to make you think that they're actually divine. He just does the things, and he empties himself. Jesus divests his status, empties himself. He pours himself out, becomes nothing, becomes human, becomes subhuman, a servant, a slave, and then becoming less. 
obedient to death. Footnote, absurdly, the absurdly public execution meant for statusless criminals on crosses. The, hymn, the hymnody is almost incredulous here. It says death, comma, even death on a cross. And this is all the stuff that Jesus is doing. All the verbs are active. He submits to this. He empties. But then he dies. Full stop. Then he dies. There should probably be more of a point at the bottom of this parabola. He goes as low as low can be. His verbs aren't active verbs because there's no action down there. But then the verbs start to change. It all becomes passive but powerful. God exalts him. God gives him a name. God lifts him up. God vindicates him over death by death. And everyone can now see victory and power and humility bound up together in this one passage that looks like a cross and sounds like Jesus. Everyone can now see that at the cross, meant for humiliation, it was actually a coronation. And that King Jesus reigns and is setting up his eternal kingdom even now. This is the story we live in, the story that we tell in our bodies when we, refuse to climb, when we refuse a climb that takes us further away from Jesus. I think there's one more slide, Steve. Maybe the, the most kind of, maybe this is summed up in kind of like a subversive paraphrase of C.S. Lewis. Uh, who, who is fond of saying that the Christian life is this climb upward and inward, and maybe it's something more like pressing further down and further in towards the cross, towards Jesus, and towards those who are most hurting, who have least, towards those messy and interrupting lives that we'd rather avoid, the lives of our neighbors, the lives of those who we encounter who might actually be Christ in disguise. So Oak Church, I'll link back into the beginning of that chapter in Philippians and say, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation from love, if there's any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. And let the same phroneo, the same mindset, be in you that was in Christ Jesus. This is a mindset to seek and save the lost it's a mindset to be in communion with the hurting. It's a mindset to shed pride and privilege. It's a mindset to move proximate to pain. And it's a mindset to continue to be surprised at how close and how available and how durable and how massive this under-the-surface kingdom is to us when we draw near to Christ. Will you all pray with me? Father, thanks for this parable. This, these parables come to us often as riddles. Um, they're 
like like Meg and the Godly Play kids say, they're they're hard to open and they're easy to break. <laughs> um, we, we pray that uh, if need be that you'd break us through them, uh, through seeing ourselves um, in them and all of their grace and all of their judgment. Um, but don't let us be paralyzed or anxious by these things. Instead, call us into this kingdom life with Jesus now, already. Call us into this life of feeding and clothing and welcoming, of visiting and taking care of those people who are most obviously broken around us and who we often avoid lest we not reveal our own brokenness. Thanks for this hard word. Help us stay in it. Help us grow near to this cross in this Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.